this is going to be a two-part message today. So there's an outline for those of you who follow the outline that has three points on it. I realize by Friday afternoon we're only going to get through two of them. That happens every once in a while. So next week, don't worry, next week we're going to pick up with the second part of this. I, as you guys know, I always leave room uh, in my preaching calendar for this kind of thing, where at the end of every series I, I leave a buffer of one to two weeks that I call open topic. And what that really means is that if I want to go long in a particular message, instead of making you guys stay here for an extra half hour, we just extend it in the next week, and, and I got some buffer room. So it won't throw us off that much. We're going to still, Lord willing, uh, finish up Galatians by about mid-December. And then we start Nehemiah in January, the book of Nehemiah from the Old Testament. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, I thank you for all the grace that you've shown us in Christ, for the forgiveness that we have, for the truth that we have, for the hope that we have, and certainly for the love that we have. I pray that as we unpack now a bit of uh, your word to us, a very, very important passage that uh, Christians have rallied around in a significant way for thousands of years now. I pray that you'd help us maybe see some of this in a new light. At the, at the very least, Lord, if we know everything we're going to talk about, uh, inspire us again, deepen us as we talk about uh, the war within. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the deal about war in general, and that is that nobody likes it. In fact, if you do, you're not sane. Nobody likes war, but most people agree that, that, that it's necessary at times in a fallen world. Or, or, or put otherwise, if we were all perfect and there was no such thing as evil in this world or a fallen nature inside of us, there would never be any war. But because this is far from true, because we know there is such thing as evil in this world, there are times where most of us realize war is going to be a reality. And if you don't think this is true, then just consider World War II from 1939 to 1945. I mean, Hitler is a powerful megalomaniac marching across Eastern and Western Europe. Mussolini is leading Italy down a fascist road, uniting with Hitler. Japan is bent on dominating other parts of the East and eventually attacks the U.S. via Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. And though most sane and rational leaders did not want to enter into war and they tried everything not to, the writing was on the wall and they knew it was going to take war in order to defend freedom and the good. And so here's how Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of Great Britain back then, summed it up to the House of Commons on June 4th, 1940. Look up here on the screen. He said, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And as you and I both know, Due to Britain's resolve, combined with a lot of Allied help, the Nazis were defeated, Mussolini was ousted, Japan eventually surrendered, and good defeated evil at the end of World War II. Sometimes, sadly, war is inevitable in a world that's filled with evil. As the quote attributed to Edmund Burke goes, all that is required for evil to prevail is for good men to do, say it with me, nothing. 
And good men and women do not do that. Sadly speaking, war is a reality in a fallen world. Now, why do I make such a big deal of that here this morning? Because this topic is not going to be about human war. The reason that this is so important to note is because, interestingly, the Bible says the same is true about the Christian's soul. It says this. The Bible affirms the reality of war for the Christian, but get this, it's a war within, a war that is constantly being waged in the soul of the follower of Jesus Christ. And it's this war that I want to address this morning and then next week as we move on in the second half of chapter 5 of the book of Galatians, the book we're studying this year at our church. And so when you look closely at what is being said in these verses that we're going to look at today, you will notice no less than three things that it tells us about this internal war that every follower of Christ has, two of which we're going to look at today and then one next week. And so let's start real simple with the first thing that it notes, and it's this. Look up here on the screen, and that is that there is indeed a war within every Christ follower. But we need to cement this right off the bat this morning. There is a war in the soul of every Christ follower. And so if you don't believe me, look at how this section begins in verses 16 to 18 of Galatians 5. You can look up here on the screen or on your outline or in a pew Bible or in your own Bible. But let's all get the word in front of us. This is Scottsdale Bible Church. So Galatians 5 verses 16 to 18 and it says this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, here it is, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, there are a couple of things that, that I don't want you to miss going on here. First, notice with me that there is obviously a battle being laid out here, and we know this because it, it's a battle complete with opposing sides and potential victors. And speaking about the believer's life, it says that the flesh is against the spirit, and the spirit is against the flesh. And as we learned last week, this flesh here is simply that natural, human, organic part of your body and soul, your, your bodily emotions and passions that are fallen and that in great part are not desirous of the things of God. While the Spirit here is obviously the Holy Spirit, because it's Spirit with a capital S, the spirit who indwells the believer and now causes him or her to want to be more Christ-like. You see, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell inside each follower. John 14, verse 17. And so all Galatians 5 is adding here is that there's also another part of us simultaneously that is still very fallen that is still very fleshly, and that these two, uh, side, in, these two things inside of us are against each other. And, and Paul uses that word against twice here to make sure that we get it. But he doesn't just stop with using the word against. He further says that these two are opposed to each other. Do you see that there in verse 17? Opposed. This is the Greek word antikemai that is used about eight times in the New Testament. And get this, it literally means to be hostile towards something. 
to be an adversary against something. It's the same word used in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 in talking about the Antichrist, the eventual man of lawlessness, when it says he opposes Antikemai and exalts himself against every god and object of worship. So it's the language of opposition that's being used here in Galatians. It's the language, quite literally, of war. And it's telling us that a battle is going on inside the soul of every Christ follower, a war between the flesh, our fallen nature, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells within. And don't miss this, guys. It's a battle for godliness. For you and I to live the life that God wants us to live. A life set apart for his purposes as we become more truth-filled and grace-filled and love-focused the people that he wants us to be. It's just that there's a part of us living inside each and every one of us that doesn't want to cooperate with God on this. Can you own that this morning? I mean, there is. You didn't really respond to that, but I'm assuming that you own that that you're with me. I mean, if the 8 o'clock service doesn't own it, the 11.15 is in a lot of trouble. So the reality is, is that we really do have this part of us that doesn't want to cooperate with God, but the good news is it's counterbalanced by the Holy Spirit who also lives inside that's constantly wooing us to God. And so the most important battle that you're ever going to wage each moment of each day, please see, is a war Within. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once noted as he was pondering the human condition and all the atrocities that he has witnessed or been a part of, noted this. Look up here on the screen. I thought this was very insightful. He says, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line dividing good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And there it is. It's a battle within that we're talking about, a battle between good and evil, your fallen flesh, and God's spirit who has great stake in your godliness and your life, and the stakes are high for this battle. And before we move on, it's very important to note one other thing about this battle that I think a lot of Christians don't understand, but as soon as you get this, it'll make sense. And that is that this is an unusual battle reserved for believers only, for followers of Christ. In other words, think about it. You have to have the Holy Spirit living in you, which only comes from accepting and following Jesus, for this battle to be waging in your soul. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, you still battle. I mean, Solzhenitsyn is right, but it's actually what I would label a flesh versus flesh battle, not a flesh versus the spirit battle. And I think that there's a big difference and so for those who have yet to come to faith in Christ for eternal life, they do have a battle, but it's a battle within their flesh. It's a battle between their flesh, between that created in God's image part that still desires to do good, but then that fallen part that many times can't do good and, quite frankly, doesn't even want to. 
And so this is affirmed by Romans 2.15. Look up here on the screen. This is worth putting up here. When it says, they, meaning unbelievers, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So what's it saying? Everybody has a conscience. Everybody has some sort of moral compass inside of them. And this conscience many times works right and tells them what they have done wrong or what they have done right. And when their conscience tells them that, it's battle time of whether or not they're going to listen to their conscience. And even as somebody who has yet to make peace with God, do something right or do something wrong. That's a battle that every human being has. It's a battle within the flesh. Uh, but please see, this is not the battle being laid out here. No, you and I have a heightened battle, a little war within as the Spirit now enters into the mix and calls us to a level of abandonment to God and living for God that the flesh does not desire. It's the Spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. That's what's being laid out here. And so as a result of this, here's the second thing you need to know. We're still under point one, though. The second thing under point one <laughs> about this war in your soul, and this is also very important, and I don't think a lot of Christians get this, and that is that God has promised as his follower and as his child that you will eventually win the war. Raise your hand if you think that's good news. That's good news. You're eventually going to win the war when you die and go to heaven. You see, that's the other side of it. But when you die and you get a resurrected body and a resurrected set of emotions and you're with God face to face, no longer battling your flesh, God is going to declare you a complete and wonderful victor through his grace that has saved you. But until that time, there is going to be war. And here's what I think the scriptures affirm. Some battles you're going to win and other battles you're going to lose. But you always got to keep your eye on the fact that you can win battles and you're eventually going to win the war. You see, I think that's the most realistic perspective to this. I'm not giving anybody a license to sin here. But I think we got to be realistic. If we're battling the flesh versus the spirit then it will go without saying that some of the battles, hopefully many, we're going to talk about how you can win many battles, we're going to win. But obviously, we're not going to win every one because we're not perfect yet and we're still in war. And I think that that's good theology for us to latch onto because this tells us why Christians aren't perfect. But one of the greatest accusations against Christians that I hear all the time is that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, they talk about this, but then they go out and sin. And I go, well, try being one sometime. I, I mean, it's not easy. I mean, you have a battle between the flesh and the flesh. I get it. I was there. But we got a battle between the flesh and the spirit. We're constantly being called to a higher standard that God holds us to. And we're going to see that here as we go along today. But we don't live it perfectly. I wish we did, but we don't. Billy Graham doesn't live it perfectly. Mother Teresa didn't live it perfectly. I, I mean, none of us are ever going to live it perfectly. That's why there is a need for continual grace and continual forgiveness. And this is why, this is the good theology, that, that, that Christians still struggle with sin. Because even as followers of Jesus, we're still men and women of the flesh who have bodily passions and, a, and an emotional frailty, very similar to other people. It's just that we also have the Spirit 
who wages war against our flesh. So in one sense, we are better primed to have victory in all of our skirmishes. We're going to talk about that. But it doesn't mean that we're going to have complete and, and, and constant victory in every battle. And though I'm going to share with you in just a minute from Galatians 5 how we can discern our level of victory or not, and I'm going to share even more importantly next week how we can become better victors in our battles. For now, we need to realize that as faithful followers of Christ, there will be some battles we win, some that we lose, and that it's very important for us to know this as we engage in the war, lest we become too discouraged. Because God gets this. And let me give you, since we're talking about war, another war analogy that I read this week in my study. On, on June 6, 1994, it was the 50th anniversary of the Allied invasion of Normandy, which, as many of you know, was probably the historic battle in World War II where they liberated continental Europe from the Nazis. And in 1994, the 50th anniversary, all the major television networks were running interviews and stories and stuff on that famous battle. And in one of the programs that was aired, there were two contrasting interviews back to back. The first interview was with a soldier who had landed on Omaha Beach. And as he was recalling calling the horrors that were very similar, this article said, between, or it was very similar to Steven Spielberg's portrayal in the movie Saving Private Ryan, the horrors of what it was like to land on Omaha Beach, that, that this soldier can distinctly remember thinking hours into the invasion, we're going to lose. Because from his vantage point, being there on the front lines in the battle, he thought, we're losing way too many people. We're not going to win this battle, maybe not even the war. But then interestingly, the very next interview was of a U.S. Army Air Corps reconnaissance pilot who at that same time was flying over the whole battle area. And he viewed the carnage on the beaches and the hills, but he also was witnessing the successes of the soldiers, the penetration by the paratroopers, the, the, the effectiveness of the aerial bombardment. And, and from his vantage point, he can distinctly remember at that time thinking to himself, we're going to win. Interesting. Two very different perspectives on the exact same battle. One of them from the guy that was in the thick of it, on the front lines, taking all the hits, going, I don't think we're going to win. The other one from the guy from the air who's seeing the whole thing and says, nah, we're going to win. You see, I think there's times where, where you and I are so mired, tell me if this isn't true, in the daily ground battle with our flesh. And we're seeing and experiencing all the losses around us. And our conclusion sometimes as Christians is we're, we're defeated. The battle's lost. And maybe we, we even get discouraged about the war itself. But what you need to know is that God sees it very differently. He, he sees it, if you will, from the air. He sees it from the vantage point of all of heaven and all the resources that are behind you and his plan for your life and his calling upon your life. And as we're going to see as we go on this week and next week, he even says, I think you can win this battle if you change your perspective. I think you can win this battle. It's better than you think. And even if that's not true, he says, you're going to win the war. And I think it's very important for you and I to latch on to that 
as we understand the war within. Be, be, in, be encouraged today, Christian. I know this is a tough, tough subject, but you're engaged in a very unique war. You are unknown to your fellow human beings who have yet to enlist through faith in Christ. And some battles you're going to win, some you won't, but God knows you're going to win the war and even many more battles than maybe you think because his spirit is in the business of being a general. And generals like to win wars. And I know this is true because John the Apostle would say it this way. Look up here on the screen. He said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And it's true. Now, with this understanding of the war before us, I want to spend the few moments we have remaining this morning before we go to the communion table asking and answering a critical question that anybody who cares about this war within should be asking. And that is, how do we specifically gauge victory and or defeat? In other words, how do we know if we are winning the battles within our flesh versus the spirit or losing them? What's the measuring stick that God wants us to have for determining failure or success? And thankfully, Galatians 5 goes on to answer these questions precisely and with crystal clarity. And so here's essentially what it says, then we're going to unpack it here. It goes on to say this, that victory or defeat is mostly seen in very evident fruit that's right before us. That's what Galatians say. In one sense, here's what Galatians is going to tell us right now, is that it's not as hard as you think. That if we will open up our eyes and understand God's measuring stick, it's not all that hard to determine whether or not you're winning any particular battle. So what do I mean by this? Look at Galatians 5 and what it goes on to say in verses 19 to 23. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you before, as I, I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Now, I know many of you have read these passages for years. In fact, in any, I ever marvel when we go into our kids' Sunday school classrooms because the most number one thing posted on Sunday school classrooms is what? Well, it's, first, it's John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But, but the second one are, are the fruits of the Spirit. And, and we constantly drill these into our kids, which is good. We don't usually talk to them about the works of the flesh, but, but we do talk to them about the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. Notice with me that in both of these lists, it's interesting, the works of the flesh as well as the fruit of the Spirit, that there are both internal as well as external traits that involve all three faculties of the human person, your thoughts, your emotions, and your will. And even things that have to do with your relationships around you. In other words, when you look closely at this list, it's very interesting to note that God made sure in giving us these lists here that it would cover every aspect of our person. So, for instance, the results of allowing the flesh to win battles will result in outward external traits like sexual sin, pornography, adultery, lust, things like that. 
It will result in drunkenness or maybe some other kind of addiction or even sensuality, which, which really is, should be translated, in my opinion, licentiousness, because this word simply means to have weak moral boundaries. It's the opposite of goodness. It's not doing good things. It's doing bad things. So there will be outward external traits that you can observe when you're living in the flesh, mostly having to do with not abiding morally by biblical standards, what we call righteousness. But then these are contrasted with other outward internal traits of the Spirit's fruit. Things like patience, whether or not you're willing to move at God's pace and with those around you and be patient and long-suffering. Or goodness, having a level of righteousness in which you know that you are good according to biblical moral standards. Or how about gentleness, being even-keeled in your behavior, not too brash or unnecessarily bold. And then my favorite, honestly, self-control, being able to harness your passions and live a life of discipline and obedience. Please see, these are all outward, external traits that either stem from your fallen, fleshly nature, or they stem from the Spirit's fruit and work in your life. And you can see it. Now, hang on to that. And notice with me, there are also, however, inward, internal traits mentioned in both lists as well. So, so again, in the, in the works of the flesh, it mentions fits of anger. In other words, not being able to respond to your frustrating emotions, which we all have in a very honest way. You, you tend to lash out at those around you, fits of anger. Or, or how about jealousy, which some translations use envy there. Simply means being envious of others and what they have, not being content with who you are in Christ. But interestingly, these are, these are contrasted with other things that we might feel of the Spirit, things like peace or joy, which are the opposite of anger and jealousy. Are, are you starting to see here? So not only does God say he's giving you some outward things to look at for you to gauge whether you're having victory, but even internally, how are you feeling? Is it peace or joy or is it fits of anger and jealousy? And then there are even relational traits mentioned here that have everything to do with your interactions with those around you. So forget about looking out, looking in, just do an audit of your relationships. Is there enmity and strife? You know, that constant sandpaper interaction that you have with those around you that's way too common for it to always be their fault. We've got to be honest with ourselves. How about rivalries? That, that unhealthy sense of competition in which you always have to one-up the other person around you. Or how about dissensions and divisions? This is huge in the church, that, that rebellious nature that is good at finding fault in anything and everything, and then you're sinfully good at getting other people on your side which was really cute on the playground when you were in first grade, but it's kind of ugly now that you're 35 and still doing it. You see, there's relational things listed through here in which we can say, yeah, that's a work of the flesh, or how about positively, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, caring more for other people than your own self. Kindness, always treating people with civility and care. Or how about faithfulness, staying with others even when they haven't been faithful to you. You see, there's outward traits, there's internal traits, there's relational traits. And then there's even a few spiritual traits thrown in here, like idolatry and sorcery to make sure that you're not involved with really dark things, because that would obviously be a giveaway there. 
And the idea here is that you and I are to take an honest, candid look at our lives. Now, I get this. All of our life, everything. This isn't legalism. This is simply saying, I'm looking outward. I'm looking inward. I'm looking at my relationships. I have the guts to do an audit of my entire spectrum of my life. And as we do that, we simply ask some honest questions. What kind of works or fruit are evident? What seems to be winning the day? when it comes to my external actions, my internal feelings, my relationships around me. And through this kind of honest audit of your life, you get a picture of whether it's more the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit. And though obviously, I think it goes without saying, we're not calling for perfection here. We already established that under point one. Christians are not perfect, and so we're going to lose some battles. There's going to be some works of the flesh that come in at times, These are, however, fairly straightforward, no-brainer, black-and-white issues. And the end of verse 21 should be disconcerting for all of us when it says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. I've been around that verse now for almost 30 years. And I've researched that verse a lot because that's a really, really hard verse, isn't it? And there are some Christians, and I think this is legitimate, who say, well, it doesn't say you're going to lose your salvation. It just says you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And so they interpret the kingdom of God there to either mean blessings this side of heaven or rewards the next side of heaven. And so they would argue that you're not really going to lose your salvation. You're just not going to get as great of a reward if you have too many works of the flesh. But then there's others that would say, no, kingdom of God is kingdom of God. That's referring to heaven. But what this passage means is that if you do these things, if you have a habitual and consistent lifestyle of these things, then your battle is probably more the flesh versus the flesh than the flesh versus the spirit. And as we've already established, flesh versus flesh isn't those who are already saved. So they would say that if the works of the flesh are winning the day on a constant basis, you might want to wonder if you're really God's. And I know what some of you think, you're thinking, where where do you fall on that, Jamie? Well, I, I probably fall more on the latter. And maybe that's for another sermon. But I have respect for the 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 first interpretation. And here's what I would argue. Either way, it's not a good picture. Amen. I mean, either way, whether you say it's a loss of rewards or or, or maybe even showing that you were never saved in the first place, he's not painting a positive picture here. He's saying that when you do an audit of your life, you ought to be concerned if there's all these works of the flesh in there because that would clue you in to, at the very least, a need to get right with God, a need to learn to walk with him. As we're going to learn next week, the need to learn to keep in step with the Spirit, which we're going to learn about how to do next week. But it's honesty time in the house of God. And I will just encourage you guys to not just focus on the ones you do well. (laughs) Because you got those ones down. Be honest about the other ones too. Dissensions, rivalries, things like that. I've always been ashamed that those things exist in the church because we tend to be very proud of the fact that we've not very involved in a lot of sexual sin and we're not doing orgies and we're not involved in sorcery and I go yeah but mentions dissensions and rivalries and fits of anger and things like that I go are are you looking at those 
Because you see, here's what happens, and this is my final thought before we move on to the communion table. Christians are really good at comparing themselves to those around us, and we tend to compare ourselves to those around us that we hand-select that are just a little bit less than us, and in so doing, we feel very good about our lives, and we kind of move on in a smug, self-satisfied fashion. And, and I think it's time we stop doing that. Because God's not asking you to compare yourself to anybody here. Have you noticed that? He's asking you to compare yourself to his standards, to his fruit, or to the works of your own flesh. If ever there was a time that you simply use God's standard to mark your life, now is it. Because it's very dangerous sometimes, sometimes, to compare yourself just with those around you. Quick story, and then we'll be done. I was in junior high. You know, you've heard Daryl talk about junior high and how terrible it was. I had a great junior high, so maybe that will help some of you feel better. I, I, I was fairly athletic. I, I had good friends. I, I enjoyed it. And, and so I, I finally have lots of stories from junior high. When I was in junior high, one of the things I really wanted to do, and this is funny, is I really wanted to play basketball. Okay, I'm five foot six and a half as an adult. When I was a freshman in high school, it's true, I was four foot ten and I weighed 85 pounds. And so imagine what I was in junior high. But I loved throwing that ball up to the net. I loved playing basketball. And there was a league in my little town of Chagrin Falls called CAA, the Chagrin Athletic Association, that up through seventh grade, anybody and everybody could play basketball. And hundreds of kids signed up. And it was a competitive league, but nobody would get cut. And so I played CAA up through seventh grade, and, and out of, I'd say, 100 kids, I would say to myself, I'm pretty good. Because I'd look around, and you know, I probably was 60 out of 100, but there was 40 kids that were worse than I was. And I felt pretty good about my basketball game, and I felt pretty self-satisfied until eighth grade. Because in eighth grade, it was the first year that the public school system offered a competitive team in preparing you for high school. And only 12 kids would make the eighth grade team. And I tried out. And I can still remember, as, a, as it was yesterday, going through that week of tryouts, and you know, you're shooting free throws, and layups, and doing drills. And I thought I did pretty good. I made most of my layups. I thought I was doing fairly good. And, and yet when the list came out, as you can imagine, my name was not on it. And it was not a terrible, atrocious thing, but I remember being kind of surprised and even bummed out. Now, why was I surprised? The reason I was surprised is because I was comparing myself to, to 100 kids in, in CAA and, and saying, well, hey, compared to them, I'm doing pretty well. But as soon as I had to get in front of 12 of the very best, I realized how short I fell. No pun intended. How short I was. So, so I went on to wrestle in high school and then run cross-country and track. I found my sports, but I still love basketball. So on Friday night, I do a lot of pickup games with my friends, and once in a while in the off-season, some of my good friends who are varsity basketball players would come and join us. And, and now is interesting. Now I found, as I compared myself to the varsity guys, that, that though before I thought I was doing better than I, I was, now it was the opposite. Now that I was comparing myself to my varsity friends, I realized I really am a lot worse than I thought. I mean, these guys are good, and I'm not. 
So I went from thinking I was doing really well in my comparison to now the other end, realizing I'm, I'm really bad and they were bringing me down. It wasn't until I got to college and seminary and continued to play with my friends and developed a good theology that I came to this conclusion. God made me five foot six. And God made me fairly athletic. And I am who I am. And I'm going to stop comparing myself to all my basketball friends. And I'm just going to be me. And I'm going to live by God's standard. See, that's what he says with the fruits of the Spirit. You could be like a junior high kid comparing yourself to all your friends in church going, I'm doing pretty well. And God will sit there and go, yeah, not as well as you think. Because you see your friends around you are in worse trouble than you. And you really haven't gotten that. Or you can compare yourself to Daryl or Billy Graham or Mother Teresa and feel really bad about yourself and compare yourself to the creme de la creme, to the varsity, and sit there and go, gosh, I'm doing so bad. Well, all the while, God says this. Isn't this a great passage? And with this, we're done. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul the apostle is struggling with this. I just looked this up last night, so it's not even on your, your, your PowerPoint. Just listen to this. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, Paul says this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am therefore by acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Amen? It's God's standard that you and I live by. We don't live by each other's standards. To the degree that we embrace biblical ethic, I do. But we live by God's standards. And so as you look at your life, as you do a, hopefully a, an honest evaluation of your life, I, I, I beg you, understand two things today. There is a war. Whether you know it or not, there's a war going on each moment of each day between the Holy Spirit who loves you and is jealous for your affections and, this, and, and the flesh that still lives in you. And yet in that war, God says you can understand how you're doing. Don't be afraid to look at his standard. To look at the outward, the inward, the relational traits around you and be honest. And if you find yourself falling a little short as you do that, then take heart. Because next week, we're going to pick up the same passage. We're going to look at only three verses, the ending three verses of Galatians chapter 5. You can read them on your own that talk about how to keep in step with the Spirit. We're going to talk about all next week how we can become better victors. As we go to the communion table, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father... I thank you for your word that is so wonderful and clear when it comes to who you are and what you want from us. And Lord, we know who you are. You're the Lord God, sovereign and providential, good in all that you are. And what you want from us is us. You want all of us, each of us, and you want the whole of us as we submit to you. And so, Lord, our hearts desire that, but as we've learned today, there's a, another part of us that tenaciously wants to do our own thing. So, God, help us to drop our pride. Help us to drop our self-satisfaction and our self-sufficiency and live more a life of dependency in you where joy is going to be found. And so, God, I pray that as we're honest with ourselves there, give us hope, remind us that we will win this war. Remind us that for those who are in Christ, we can be no other. And that even though we might lose a few battles, you are still with us. This table reminds us of that. This table reminds us of your, your blood and your, your body, of your son that was given for us that we might be free. And so we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Is he on there?